How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Eucalypt Speed Test Intelligence Data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023. And we're back. It's conversation. The president's recent trip to the Middle East. Is it going to make a difference? What was accomplished? What was missed? These are going to be some of the questions I ask my next guest, Miko Paled. He's the author of a new book, The General's Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. Good morning, Miko. Good morning. It's afternoon here in Jerusalem, but good morning. All right. Good morning here. Um, The president's recent trip to Israel, what's your reaction to it? Well, uh, let, let me just tell you that I'm, I'm, I'm here in Jerusalem at home under house arrest for having been uh, arrested yesterday by the, Israeli, uh, by the Israeli authorities for participating in a non-violent peace, uh, peace march. Um, and, um, you know, I think it's a good backdrop as into, into, your, into the, your question and the reality that exists here in light of uh, Trump's visit here to, um, to this country. Um, you know, it was all pomp and circumstance, uh, a lot of grandstanding, a lot of uh, handshakes and hugs. Um, but in terms of substance, the only thing that actually happened was a warm embrace from the, you know, the President of the United States to the State of Israel saying, we're giving you a blank check like we always have, only we're giving you a blank check with a warm hug. Um, and Israel, in Israel here, the media and the government were thrilled that he brought no, um, no deal, no proposals for a deal, and no interest in any kind of a deal that will, that will end, uh, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian question. So that's the reality that exists here. And Palestinians, of course, are um, living under terrible conditions. A hunger strike of some 1,500 political prisoners just ended after 40 days. As I said, I'm in, under house arrest for several days uh, for participating in a um, peaceful march in the West Bank. Um, so the reality here is severe, and all that Trump did was really tell Israel, you can continue doing exactly what you're doing, and we're going to love you for it. Uh, the yeah. press, the government, loved it. How about the average Israeli citizen? Do you have any sense? Oh, yeah, they love it, too. They fell in love with Trump right away. Before he came, there was a little bit of, there was a little bit of suspense because he, he's, you know, he's unpredictable. And at one point he talked about a deal, then he talked about no deal, then he talked about moving the embassy to Jerusalem, and then he, he came, you know, came down from that. So there was uncertainty, but there was a sense that he's on the Israeli side. Um, when he came and uh, pretty much as soon as he landed and was welcomed with a military parade and, and speeches and so forth, it was absolutely clear that he will do nothing um, to upset Israel. And Israelis on the streets are very happy because they support the government. I mean, the, the Israeli government was, has, has a huge, you know, was one, this particular government, one with, a, with a, what is considered a landslide, really, by Israeli, by Israeli um, terms. And so they, the, the government represents the people. And the people are very happy with the fact that Trump uh, supports the government and supports everything that Israel does. This is, of course, on the Israeli side. On the Palestinian side, things are very different. 
I would imagine, though, security had to be intense because he would make a very attractive target for people who were unhappy with the situation in the Middle East. Well, security was intense. Um, I don't know that he would make a target. Uh, there's nobody here that has the capacity, really, to threaten um, the security of the U.S. president or anything else for that matter. I mean, Israelis would have no reason to do it. Palestinians wouldn't have the capability of doing it, even if they wanted to. Um, but security was so insane uh, that they they closed the road when he landed. He, they closed the road from Tel Aviv Airport to Jerusalem, which is the main thoroughfare. It's about a 45-minute drive. They closed it completely. It's a main highway for two or three hours. Even though he didn't use it, they flew him in by helicopter. You know, that's just how insane the security was. They closed the road that he wasn't going to use, you know, because they flew him by helicopter from the airport in Tel Aviv uh, to Jerusalem. Um, but people were so happy with, his, with him being here, Israelis, that nobody even complained. Even the media and the press usually complain about things like that and, you know, the insanity of it. Nobody complained. There was... Um, it was it was a real honeymoon actually. It was it was um, it was a bit nauseating, I have to say. It was such a it was such a you know sweetener filled honeymoon. How about um, the president's daughter Ivanka and his son-in-law Jared Kushner, Orthodox Jews? Yeah, well, you know, I think. Um, the sense is that they have a lot to do with um, his warm embrace of Israel. Kushner has been a longtime supporter of Israel. His family supports the the extremist most settlements in the West Bank financially. Um, they support an organization called Friends of the IDF, which gives Israeli military money, even though the Israeli military has more money they know what to do with because they get money from the U.S. They get, the, they get foreign aid from the U.S. Um, so there is a definitely a sense that he is behind, him and his family are definitely behind this, this uh, warm embrace that Trump has given um, Israel and, Israeli, uh, and the Israeli government. Yet there was a report here in our media that the Kushner's rabbi was unhappy with them because they flew on the Sabbath. Well, you know. You got to do what you got to do. I don't know. It's uh, from what I heard, they got some kind of some kind of a, a permit to fly on the Sabbath or something. But I mean, this is—it's uh, not really anything that anybody here cares about, or, or or that I think is of any of any great importance, one way or the other. How about their visit to the Western Wall? Well, I think you know the, the the something that people don't know about the Western Wall. You know, the Western Wall, of course, has been there for a very long time. The entire plaza that was built to accommodate the Western Wall uh, was put together immediately after 1967 when Israel occupied East Jerusalem. And uh, that was a very large community, tens of thousands of people who lived there. And within 24 hours, that entire community was forced to leave at gunpoint. The houses were destroyed. It was a very ancient community, actually, that lived there in Jerusalem. Um, and neighborhood, uh, the entire ancient neighborhood was bulldozed. The people had, were given, you know, a day or two to just get their things and get the hell out. Nobody cared where they went. And on the ruins of that ancient neighborhood and that community, they built this massive plaza, which now celebrates this, um, you know, this this Western Wall and this and the conquest of of, um, of East Jerusalem, which, by the way, does not. Is, is, is considered illegal by international law, um, and is really is really um, 
indicative and, and, and symbolic of, of, of Israel and its, and its entire treatment of Palestinians and its entire treatment of um, the holy places and so forth. You know, people are trying, now it's Ramadan, and people are trying, young people, old people are trying to come and pray in Jerusalem, and the restrictions are horrifying. Um, you have to get permits, you have to be between a certain age, um, and when you think about it, yesterday I was I was arrested in in my cell. It was or um, not in the cell, but in the waiting area. There was a young Palestinian who was arrested for coming to Jerusalem to pray without a permit. So they need the permit if they want to come, say, from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to pray. And he's probably going to end up uh, spending at least um, several months in prison for that. So there's this real sense that on the one hand they're grand, making this, these grand gestures towards anything that's Jewish and placing um, serious limitations and restrictions and prohibitions on Palestinians who after all just want to come and pray during the holy month of Ramadan. So the sense is here that this, even, even when it comes to religious rights, there's a, a great deal of, of discrimination and oppression against the Palestinians. Why don't we hear more about that though? We hear so much about the bad stuff that Palestinians are, are up to, but we don't hear about the bad stuff the Israelis are up to. Well, you know, you might know more about that than I do since uh, you're in the media, but of course, you know, we, 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 we are hearing about you. Everybody's hearing about it today. I think there's a sense that Americans have that they, it's something that they get almost with their mother's milk. I mean, they certainly get it in their churches, in the synagogues, in school, that Israel is the good side and Arabs are the bad. Israel's are the good guys and Arabs are the bad guys, and then everything kind of flows from there. And, um, and it's very difficult for any kind of news that criticizes Israel to reach, to reach mainstream media. It's just very, very difficult. People are not interested. And even when I do get, for example, I've done a lot of these kinds of interviews since I'm here in Jerusalem and Trump has been, has been here, and I've had uh, uh, journalists, interviewers like yourself, argue with me about the things I say, say, no, 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 that what you're saying can't be true, it isn't true. There's a very, there's a sense, it's, it's hard for Americans to accept this, any kind of criticism against Israel and any kind of, um, anything that would legitimize any news or any report that would legitimize the Palestinian side, the Palestinian cause, the Palestinian um, suffering, if you will. Um, so it's, it's, it's a tough question. It's, it's, it's a million dollar question. Um, and, you know, Jewish communities are quite influential in, in many of the big cities in, 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 uh, in the United States. And I think that may have something to do with it, too. Well, I think some of it, at least my own theory, is it's an emotional issue because of the Holocaust and people's feelings about the Holocaust and the whole notion of never again. Yes, the, 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 I think that has a lot to do with it. I agree with you. Yes, you're absolutely right. The thing is that it has nothing to do with never again. In other words, if we say never again, what do we mean? Do we mean never again only to one side, or do we mean never again to anyone? Um, so if Israel is committing war crimes, then is that okay just because Jews suffered in the Holocaust? I mean, that doesn't really make sense. If Israel is restricting the religious rights of Muslims in Jerusalem, is that okay because Jews suffered in the Holocaust? Um, if Israel has laws that discriminate specifically against Palestinians who, who don't allow Palestinians to march peacefully and protest and demand their rights, is this okay because of the Holocaust? In other words, if we say never again, we should mean never again for anyone. And it doesn't matter which side is, 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 um, is wrong, we need to come up and say this is wrong and this is right. 
The other part of that is, the answer for that is that something that a lot of people don't realize, very few Holocaust survivors ended up in Israel. The vast majority of Holocaust survivors did not come here. So very few Israelis are actually related to Holocaust survivors who had anything to do with the Holocaust. And the entire project of the State of Israel, the establishment of the State of Israel, preceded the Holocaust. Um, so again, even though there's this, there's this impression that the Holocaust is a big part of what Israel is and a response to the Holocaust and so forth, in reality, that, that is not really the case. That's interesting because propaganda, I mean, recently on television was the movie Exodus. And if you take Exodus, I'm sorry? Recently on American television was the movie Exodus. And if you yes. take the propaganda that that represents, Israel should be full of Holocaust survivors and their families. Yes, exactly. And they did a very, very good job in, in creating this uh, myth and perpetuating this myth that Israel is full of Holocaust survivors. But, that has not, but, but, but it's not the reality. You know, the reality is that actually very few came. Many of those that did come actually left as soon as they could because they, they didn't like it here. They realized that this was also a racist project where Jews are being allowed to take somebody else's country and, and, um, and impose an oppressive reality, an oppressive regime against other people. So why would Holocaust, anybody who suffered the Holocaust agree to this? Um, so many of the Holocaust survivors who actually did come ended up leaving. And, of course, the Holocaust was, was made into one of the main pillars of Zionism, one of the main pillars of the State of Israel. Every state visit, every head, head of state that comes here has to go to the Holocaust Memorial Museum, Yad Vashem, um, and so forth. So it's become part of the narrative, you know, an important part of the narrative. But it doesn't have, uh, but it has really very, very little um, connection to the reality here. In other words, very few Holocaust survivors ended up coming here. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Miko Paled, author of The General Sun, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. And he's coming to us from Jerusalem this morning. We're talking about Donald Trump and a whole lot more, his recent visit to the state of Israel. Donald Trump prides himself as being the ultimate deal maker. And while you say he didn't talk deal this trip, there's some concern that he'll be back and try and make a deal. You think it's possible? I don't think it's. I don't think there's a realistic. It's a realistic expectation. I don't think he's going to come back. I mean, no American president has visited this place more than once, um, and even those that did did never visited this soon. But um, I don't think there's no. I think I think he's uh, he's made it very very clear that he is, he's not interested in a deal. He has no deal. And really, it's not really about a deal. I mean, this whole idea that you can somehow, that there's some kind of a magic, magic deal that will solve the problem and make everyone happy is nonsense. This, there's a reality that exists here, which, again, many people, I think, in the U.S. don't realize. In this country, the entire country, whether you call it Israel or whether you call it Palestine, it's the same country, there are 12 million people. And they're divided almost in half. There's a slight Palestinian majority. So Palestinians make up a little bit more than 6 million, and Israeli Jews make up a little bit less than 6 million. But basically, they're about, you know, there are two nations living here under the rule of one nation. In other words, Israel, which claims to be the Jewish state, governs the lives of everybody. So for myself as an Israeli Jew, I live under, you know, laws that are, you know, liberal democracy laws. Palestinians live under completely different laws, and not only are they different laws, but they differ even among Palestinians depending on where they live exactly. 
So some Palestinians have kind of a quasi-Israeli citizenship. If they live in Jerusalem, then they have a special kind of ID, which is a Jerusalem ID, um, which is a limited kind of, um, it's called, it's like an alien resident with many limitations. If they live in the West Bank, depending if they live on area A, B, or C, then, those, then you know, the laws that govern their lives are different, and then you've got the Gaza Strip. Um, it's, a, it's a very complicated web of laws and a very complex uh, bureaucracy that governs their lives and, and makes sure that their lives are, are, are very, very difficult. Um, so that's the reality here. To assume that there could be some kind of a magic potion, some kind of a magic deal that some you know, deal maker can come and make is, is really childish. There are really only two options. One is to change the paradigm here completely and turn the entire place into a democracy where everybody has equal rights, which is the solution that I believe is the best, um, or allow things to continue the way they are, which is what I believe Donald Trump is quite happy to do because he has this love affair with um, Netanyahu, the prime minister, and his family is completely dedicated to the state of Israel and the idea of a Jewish state. Um, so that, that's it. I mean, to, to expect that you know Donald Trump was some kind of a deal maker who's going to come and with you know and pull a rabbit out of his hat, I think is is, is really a, a bit childish. Why does the Israeli government take the position it takes on the Palestinian question? What's your sense of why there's not an interest in sharing power and access? Because the. The state of Israel has been, was established on a certain ideology. That ideology is called Zionism. And the Zionist ideology says that this land belongs to the Jews, all of it. In other words, it's not a question of a state or not a state. The land of Israel belongs to the Jewish people, period. So whether you're a Jew living here, whether you're a Jew living in, living in Philadelphia, whether you're a Jew living in Paris or Rome or, or, or in Buenos Aires, this is your land. Um, and Palestinians are in the way. So the only way for this to work is to do what Israel has done, which is come here, steal the land, kick out as many Palestinians as they could, and force the ones that remain to live under unlivable conditions. There is no other option. No legitimacy can be given to any claim by Palestinians to have rights here because that goes against the core of the ideology that built the state of Israel, which is Zionism. So it's, it's, in terms of Israeli thinking, in terms of Zionism, it's a zero-sum game. It's all ours, and this is how we have to be. That's why we have to have a, always have this, this, maintain this military, this obsession with, with, with military might. Even though Palestinians have never had an army and have never really posed a threat, the threat is not a military one. The threat is the threat to the legitimacy. Because if we accept, accept Palestinian demands for anything, then even the right to march on a Friday afternoon and, and you know, peacefully with flags and, 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 and banners and so forth is giving in and chipping away at the legitimacy of the state of Israel. Um, and really Israel has only two choices. They can either accept that the Palestinians have legitimate rights and then they need to have equal rights as Israelis and then it's really no longer a Jewish state. It's a state of all of its people, which again, like I said, it should be. Or they have to attack the Palestinians and blame them for being terrorists and blame them for being violent and, and arrest you know, thousands of political prisoners, political activists, and bomb and kill innocent civilians in Gaza. And then this, this magic trick where they bl attack them and blame them for being terrorists, even though Palestinians have never had a military force, 
is working very well. It's a, it's a very well-oiled PR machine that, that perpetuates this, um, this story, and it's working very well. But Israel ideologically cannot accept any compromise with the Palestinians because the ideology says that this land belongs to Jews. So over 95% of the land is not even, the state is not even permitted to lease or sell 95% of the land here to anyone but Jews. All right. You used a phrase that I want to ask you about, and that is they took the land. Did they take the land or did the United Nations give it to them? Well, they took the land and the United Nations uh, legitimized it. Um, you know, some of the land was already taken by the time the United Nations came came around, the United Nations partition plan. And this is another thing that I think many people don't realize. In 1947, the United Nations came up with a partition plan. Um, and so, and this partition plan gave the vast majority of the country, the larger portion of the country to the Jewish community and the smaller portion of the country allocated for a state that would be a, pal- a state for the Palestinians. Now, in 1947, there were barely half a million Jews living here, and mo- almost all of them were immigrants. These were this was a generation of my grandparents who immigrated here and my parents who were first generation to be born here. The Palestinian community was three times as large at least. And they were somehow allocated the smaller portion of the land, which really makes no sense. The larger portion of the land was given to a community of immigrants who had just come off the boat. And then the native population, um, who were supposed to somehow agree to this, to this idea that they would accept a smaller portion of the land, which is all theirs. And, of course, this plan, I don't think anybody ever took it seriously, because as soon as the United Nations accepted this plan, what's called the Partition of Palestine, in November of 1947, immediately the, the Jewish community, which had a very strong militia by then, um, began a massive assault on Palestinian communities, which lasted about a year. And at the end of that year, hundreds of Palestinian towns and villages were, were raised, Close to a million Palestinians were forced into exile, and the state of Israel was established on the ruins of that of what was Palestine. So it took, and then it was legitimized by United Nations resolutions. Now, mind you, that conquest of 1947-1948 was never recognized internationally, which is why Jerusalem, for example, is not recognized as a part of Israel, which is why there are no embassies in Jerusalem. You know, which kind of takes us to the whole issue of moving the American embassy to Jerusalem. There are no embassies in Jerusalem because internationally that the, the conquest of Jerusalem was illegal back in 1948. Israel con- completed the conquest in 1967 by taking East Jerusalem and the West Bank, which also uh, has, not been, has not been recognized internationally. Um, but this is the reality Israel takes, and then it's, 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 it, 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 do, it does what it's called. It, 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 um, Facts on the ground. It creates facts on the ground, and then it, and then there's, you know, it's inevitable that they get some kind of legitimacy. It has to be hard being a peace activist in Israel, is it? Yes, it's very hard. I mean, like I said, you know, it's it's the 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 the, the consensus here is um, pretty much what I just described to you, and the Israeli government, which represents the people, because Israelis vote in very high numbers. So Netanyahu, like I said, this last election won by what is considered a landslide. The entire makeup of the Israeli Knesset, the House of Representatives here, represents the people. And they're all, to a very small degree, you know, with very small differences, accept and, and, and agree with Netanyahu and his policies. 
So it's very difficult to be because you're on the outside. Um, and like I said, yesterday I participated in something I do quite a lot, in a peaceful march in one of the small villages in the West Bank. It's something they do every Friday. Um, demanding It's a protest where they demand their land back because settlements have been built on their land and, and so forth. Um, and the military, and so there's maybe 30 protesters, uh, 40 protesters, people with flags. And um, the army shows up in, in massive force, fully armed, combat soldiers, ready to, you know, ready to really blow everybody away. And sure enough, they do. They start uh, throwing tear gas, and then they go to rubber-coated bullets, and then they go to live ammunition, and then they go to, I mean, it's just horrifying what they do. And I try to walk up to the commanders, you know, and say, speak to them in Hebrew and say, look, what are you doing? It's just a bunch of people here who want to protest. Leave them alone and they'll go home when they're done, you know. But they can't do that. So they walk up to a crowd sitting by a house and they'll throw, and they'll throw a, tear, a tear gas grenade right in the middle of the crowd. And it's just mostly women and children sitting there by the house, you know, watching the, not even participating, but watching. And they do it several times. And then they, and then the snipers uh, start um, shooting, um, and aiming live ammunition at an unarmed crowd um, and so forth as they run away, as they disperse. So that it's a very, very difficult reality. And to be as an Israeli among the Palestinians, of course, the soldiers and the officers call you a traitor. And, you know, and eventually, like I said, I was arrested, detained. I'm under house arrest now. And, and, there are other, and, and after, after spending uh, some 25, 26 hours in a prison cell, and receiving a uh, restraining order. I'm not allowed to return to that area for 30 days. So it's, it's a very difficult, if it's a very difficult reality because you are, you are a minority, a very small minority, um, uh, speaking to a very violent and very racist um, majority. And I'd like to say thank you to Miko Paled, his new book, The General Sun, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. If you want more information on this question, check it out. Thank you, sir. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, and it's been Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More good conversation after these messages. And we're back. Parenthood's the most important job possible for which we give the least amount of preparation possible. So it's always important to take a look at parenting and what it means. And we're going to do that with my next guest, Carrie Wagner Peck. Her new book, Not Always Happy, An Unusual Parenting Journey. Good morning, Carrie Wagner-Peck. Hi, Peter. Thank you for having me on. Now, people either plot and planned to have a baby the more biological way, or if that's not possible, they adopt. And most yeah. people usually want a baby and want a perfect baby. You did something different, didn't you? Um, we, we got a pretty perfect two-year-old through the foster care system in our state. Yeah. Um, we um, decided against, um, you know, using a um, fertility assistance. Um, I really didn't want to be pregnant, um, and we thought we were going to adopt internationally, um, and we realized we couldn't afford that after a couple of years. That was not going to happen, and so it, it it was this last sort of, you know, um, I guess we'll go through the foster care system, which was the perfect path for us. And um, I think we could have saved ourselves a lot of time and worry 
um, had we just started there. But we adopted a um, we adopted him when he was three, but he came into our house when he was two. Um, a boy who was in the foster care system who also had Down syndrome. Wow. Kids get into foster care system usually because there's problems with their biological family. Yeah, it's really, I mean, I, that's the only way, I think. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's, there are some cases where children are surrendered, but usually it's a very painful process where children are um, physically removed from a home that's not safe. And it's often said by experts that children removed from a home where it's not safe suffer some degree of emotional damage by being removed. Do you think that's the case? Um, you know, I I think it's probably, um, I think there's that probably is true, and I'm sure it's different for different children, what was going on. For some children, it's probably also a relief, um, you know, for others. I mean, it you know, it's still your parents. You, I think we want it to work with those people, and so it's devastating when it doesn't. All right, and then you have had the added complication with your son of Down syndrome. What was there about Down syndrome that made you pick that child? Um, you know, I, I write about this in the book. Um, we said we didn't want a child with a disability. Um, and our foster care worker called and left a voicemail saying she'd met a boy um, he was two years old. He was beautiful. You know, he was this um, great kid, and he had Down syndrome. And my husband and I were standing together in our dining room listening to that voicemail. And we had to listen to it seven times before we were absolutely convinced she said Down syndrome. And for some reason, it just didn't bother us. And, in fact, we had a really shared sense of calm. And so I I think we somehow were tapping into this is a person that is our son and he it it just felt right it just felt like the right thing and it he wasn't it didn't feel like he was compromised by having down syndrome and we didn't really know anything about down syndrome um and i you know i wish i could be more articulate but that's basically what happened now I noticed the initials MSW, Master's Degree in Social Work, after yeah. your name. Do you think that helped you in this adoption process to understand and accept your son? Yeah, I mean, for us, it wasn't even do we accept him. It was just so apparent this was our child. So it wasn't, um, I mean, I think my degree helped. You know, my training was in strength-based social work. So that means you really start with what are people's strengths as their path to a, a better way in life rather than focusing on somebody's limitations or um, challenges. And I really believed in that. That wasn't just something I thought sounded like a good idea. It was actually part of my practice when I was a social worker. So I think I was, you're right, I mean, I was oriented that way. And sons also, though, 
have a special meaning, I think, for men. How did your husband adapt to this, adapt to this whole question? You know, I think he was actually much more, um, uh, you know, I made the mistake of going online and starting to research Down syndrome, and the information is, you know, at that time was really, it was archaic, and it, it wasn't, it was never accurate. You know, these people can't, um, you know, education is difficult for them, um, you know, they are living independent lives. I mean, I, I actually started questioning our decision before we met our son. And my husband was the one who really stayed steadfast. He was like, you know, if you don't like what you're reading, stop reading it. You know, we made this decision based on how we felt. And, you know, let's stick with that. And I think that you know, for him, I think it was just like, this decision's already been made. We're not going to let other people influence us. Your husband sounds like an exceptional man. I think he's, you know, he's somebody who's a realist. You know, he is, I mean, I think he's exceptional, of course, because he's my husband. But I think he's, um, you know, we wanted to be parents. We weren't trying to fulfill, neither one of us was trying to fulfill some extension of ourself or, um, I mean, and we're both such late bloomers, you know, in terms of our developmental process. Like Thorin is, Thorin is probably, our son is, is probably going to be much more successful than, than we were by, you know, our age. Okay. There's a lot of misconceptions about Down syndrome. You said that yourself when you did the research. Yeah. What do we need to know? Well, I think one thing we need to know is that um, not all people with Down syndrome are the same. You know, they share genetic information. Um, But I think we have, when it comes to disability and particularly cognitive disability, we lump everyone together. Um, You know, they're, not complex individuals. They um, require repetition. They, you know, can only do certain kinds of work. They, um, you know, they don't um, have the same dreams and hopes and goals that the rest of us have. And, you know, none of that is true. My, you know, just uh, in the people, and I, I think other people, you know, people with Down syndrome would, totally agree with this. I mean, I think self-advocates have done the best job in terms of educating us. But I think we, we see them as, like, um, childlike, no matter how old they are, and loving and huggable. And, you know, one of the reviews in my book is by Anna Rose Rubright, who has Down syndrome. And she said, I hope this book changed people's minds that we're not lovable, huggable people. Um. You know, I think that is, we've given them a childlike status in the world. But you have hopes and dreams for your son. I would imagine someday you want to be grandparents. Uh, no, I mean, I we're not big procreators on my side of the family. Um, no, I want him to, you know, do what he wants. You know, that's what we're here for. You know, my husband and I, our job is to, 
um, just help Thorne in the direction he wants to go. You know, he loves art, he loves theater, he loves dance. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I really, I don't have expectations. I, my, my expectation is he will pursue his dreams and passions. But other than that, I really don't. And I would say that no matter who my child was. You know, I became a parent at 49. I'm not really looking to, you know, I, um, yeah, I'm not looking to tell someone what they should do with their life. Well, and I think you raise an important point, though, about hopes and dreams. I recall a gentleman, I think his name was Chris Burke, who was an actor with Down Syndrome in a TV series that ran for several years, Life Goes On. Yeah. And that's an example of what people with Down Syndrome can achieve. Well, and I think he really changed a lot of perceptions at that time about people with Down Syndrome. Yeah, no, I agree. And there's a lot of advocates now. You know, there's Lauren Potter, there's Jamie Brewster, um, there's um, there are other people, you know, fighting that, fighting perceptions and stereotypes now, too. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Carrie Wagner Peck, author of a new book, not always happy, an unusual parenting journey. It's a memoir about adopting and raising a son with Down syndromes. And it reminds us that parenthood isn't always easy and sometimes can be quite messy. How was parenthood messy for you, Carrie? Um, I think, um, well, one, you know, having a two-year-old that you love desperately but you don't really know coming into the house you know, my husband and I face the same challenges as any new parent. Um, and figuring out, the three of us had to figure out who we were with each other, which, um, you know, my son related much more to Ward off the bat. He actually called him mom and dad. And he called me Ba. He refused to call me mom for the first 18 months. And... You know, he hadn't had a great experience with um, a mother. So I I think it was, like, I really had to prove myself with him, you know, not take that personally. Um, he did a lot of testing with me. Um, he was much more apt to be angry with me, um, you know, and I think really to assess my temperament. You know, he was trying to get a handle, like, is this person... Um, going to do right by me. And so I think that was a, you know, that was a hard period. He was calling the mailman um, mom before me, I think, just to bug me. Um, and and then I think our biggest challenges, which I document in the book, is really with the education system. Um, and we, we learned rather quickly, Thorne's biggest disability is really other people and their perceptions rather than his Down syndrome. We were constantly having to say, please raise the bar. He can do more than this. Um, and so that, I think that that caused a lot of friction for us um, with different systems. Well, I think it's important to point out, particularly 
the role the education system should play versus what it does play. How was yeah. it? How was it for your son? You know, I think it was um, public school. We actually ended up leaving public school at the end of first grade. Our son went. He had been in a developmental preschool prior to that, and then he went. The kindergarten year was okay. I mean, he had such a wonderful teacher. He had a great aide, um, and you know, there the, the the expectations are um, pretty much the same for everyone. It it got really painful in first grade. We had asked for inclusion, meaning we wanted him in a regular classroom. And they did not know how to do that, but they had to say they would do it because of the Americans with Disability Act. And what we found out rather late is that, you know, you actually have to say, what's your inclusion plan look like? How do you include somebody with Down syndrome in a regular classroom? What is your mission statement on that? Um, I mean, they just said, yeah, you can do that, and but they had no idea how. And our son was, you know, segregated in the classroom. He was in the back of the classroom working with an aide on a different project and watching his classmates in front of him work together. And, you know, that's not how educated, that's a segregated classroom. And there was no concept that he, that that was painful for him. And it was extremely painful for him. What grade would your son be in now? He would be in, so if that was second, fourth grade. He'd be finishing his fourth grade. And you're currently homeschooling? We are. We're ending our third year of homeschooling. And that, it has been fantastic. I mean, um, it, it's been a great, you know, Thorin is, um, you know, reading, writing, doing math. He's involved in several activities outside the house every week. Um, he gets to explore what he wants. Um, he loves colonial American history and ancient Egypt, so that's been his focus this year. Um, we wouldn't be able to do that. You know, in a, a public school setting, you certainly can't allow children to pick their interests. Heaven forbid. Right, right. I mean, it's just, it's not doable. And so this is a, this lifestyle is very good for us. I, I mean, my husband and I, and we're shocked, but it's a good match. Would you ever consider putting him back in public school? You know, I don't know. It just seems like that's getting worse. I mean, I, he, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think we're confirmed homeschoolers. It just, um, I don't think school is really about the love of learning and how to learn and, and the curious mind. I think um, you know, we're putting kids in school for so many hours a day. They don't really need that. That's like a place to put them. Um, it just seems like it's more about social control and fitting in. And um, I think it's hard. I think it's difficult for a lot of children. But I think if you don't fit in to begin with, I think it's 
it might not be a good idea. I mean, my son's job isn't to make the school system better for children with Down syndrome. You know, I think that's what we came to realize late in the game. His job is to learn. Um, no, I don't think we would. Well, um, it's not his job to make the school system better for Down's children, but sometimes parents have to take on the system and making it better for their child makes it better for other children with the same problem. Yeah, you know, that's how we started out in this. We absolutely passionately, you know, believed in that and inclusion and that this is, you know, we're part of this, um, you know, this group that's going to change the system from within. And then I, I, you know, this idea of uh, oppositional consciousness that you don't sacrifice your family or your child for a greater cause. And I, you know, I don't have any judgments against people who go are in the public school system. You know, if it works for you, great. If you're committed to it, great. But we made this decision that we're not going to sacrifice Thorin Wagner Peck in some greater good. He's a, you know, at that time he was a seven-year-old boy. He's not a social change agent. He he needs to learn reading, writing, math, um, art, science, um, and I I think that's really where we are right now. I mean, I hope to change people's hearts and minds with the book, but that's different than using um, my son's emotional state. And who to write the book for? Is this a book for parents? who've discovered their child has Down syndrome? You know, I'm hoping that it's for a, a wide adult audience. You know, I have readers to my blog who don't aren't parents, and I have since the beginning. Um, I think people identify, it's funny, it's a funny book, it's an angry book, it's, um, but I think, even though it's called an unusual parenting journey, I think it really appeals to anyone who knows what it's like to to feel different. And, um, you know, I've had one of my reviewers is a woman who lives in a wheelchair, and she was like, this is the same path I, this is, I faced the same thing Thorin did in school. Um, you know, I, so I, I don't. I wouldn't limit it to parents with Down syndrome. Who do you want to read the book? Everyone. <laughs> I want everyone to read this book. I mean, that's really my mission in life: is to change people's perception about Down syndrome. That we have a very warped, limited view, and it. Um, I. That's really my mission in life now. And you're doing a beginning good job, Carrie Wagner-Peck, with your new book, Not Always Happy, An Unusual Parenting Journey. You mentioned the blog. Where do we find that? Okay, well, I have an author website if people are interested in learning more about the book, um, kariwagnerpeck.com. And my blog, Atypical Son, can also be reached through kariwagnerpeck.com. So I've been blogging for about seven years um, about our family's journey. And so if people are at all interested in what I'm saying, I'd suggest they go there. 
um, because I think it, it is, I'm trying, at the end of the day, I'm trying to entertain people too. Um, it's not preachy. It's not didactic. If you knew then what you know now, would you have changed anything? Um, it's so hard. I mean, I, I, I would have been a better advocator for our son. I mean, I, I was too trusting. Um, you know, I just thought if we're really honest and forthcoming, people will be that way with us. And I was really naive. I think I would be less, less naive and realize that um, for 400 years, the educational system has pretty much successfully, you know, kept out people with disabilities. They're very good at doing that. Um, and, yeah, to be less naive. Well, for 400 years, they've kept them out. You see any hope for the future with things in Washington and on the state level? I don't. I mean, with the... The amendments to the um, AHCA, the the cuts and caps on pre-existing conditions, pre-existing conditions includes Down syndrome. I mean, so that means services for independent living and continued education would be cut. And so the idea of us as a society helping people um, live independent lives would be destroyed. So no, I don't, I don't have a lot of, I mean, it's not just people with Down syndrome right now. I think there's a lot of people that are very fearful of what's coming down. I want to say thank you to Carrie Wagner Peck for joining (laughs) us this morning and for her new book, Not Always Happy, An Unusual Parenting Journey. It's important. Thank you so much, Peter. My pleasure, Carrie. Okay. And you, bye. Oh. And you've been listening to another edition of Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. Thank you to Phil Jackson, the producer this morning, and Tideman Solomon, the associate producer. My dear wife couldn't do it without either one of you. Nothing left to say, but see you soon. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas... Phoenix, and Rhode Island. Jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023.